This episode of New Politics was released on the 27th of November, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the government promised the federal ICAC but tries to deliver religious discrimination and voter ID bills instead, and a federal politician calling for an uprising. How did we get into this hole and how did we get out? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, ornithologist. And over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at some of the independent campaigns all around Australia. Last week, we looked at what was happening in the Voices of Kuyong campaign. Next week, we'll be looking at an independent campaign in the seat of Deakin. And it's quite an interesting time to be an independent candidate in a federal election, David. There's a sense, and certainly the independent candidates are feeling this, and the organisations pushing for independent candidates, there's a sense in which they feel that there's going to be a total sea change in Parliament with a lot more independence. This is very possible. Certainly the two we've spoken to are highly motivated and focused on making sure that their seats get what they see as better representation. We'll be speaking to some more independent candidates. And of course, if you're in a major party or in a party and you'd like to talk to us, certainly all views are encouraged. It is perhaps pointing to a change in in the Australian polity, which we'll have to wait and see if that's the case. Three years ago, the Prime Minister announced he was going to introduce a National Independent Commission Against Corruption, and then he said a religious discrimination bill was a top priority for this term of Parliament. And in what could possibly be the last few days of this term of Parliament, he decided to introduce two bills to deal with these issues. The Religious Discrimination Bill, it's really a bill that nobody really wants, nobody needs and nobody really cares about. And this is all about trying to create another wedge for the Labor Party and another chapter in their ongoing culture wars. And with the federal ICAC, their proposal will set up a body that that is ineffective, it's got no teeth and won't be able to stamp out any of the corruption on a federal level. But we can see what the strategy here will be. His federal ICAC bill will either be defeated and then Morrison will blame everyone else for not introducing it or accuse others of being corrupt. And if there is a miracle and the legislation is passed, he'll misrepresent what it is and claim it's the world's best anti-corruption body. As it stands, Morrison has been arguing in Parliament against the need for a federal ICAC, claiming that it would be a kangaroo court, and Gladys Berejiklian, the former New South Wales Premier, was done over by the New South Wales ICAC, ignoring the fact that it seems that she behaved very, very corruptly. About the only good thing about Morrison's behaviour at the moment is that it's so easy to predict, and it makes our job a lot easier, and I can imagine that it makes the job for the opponents of this government a whole lot easier as well. When it came to undermining ICAC like that, it was extraordinary. When does a prime minister go so hard against a legally and properly constituted body that is clearly doing an excellent job with very limited resources, thanks to the cuts by the Bed and Berejiklian government, and with a lot of outside pressure on it anyway? 
the New South Wales Liberal Party has never trusted ICAC, even though it set it up after it found Nick Groner had behaved corruptly and Nick Groner took it to the, must have been the New South Wales Supreme Court, and essentially got off on a technicality. So there's a tradition in trying to undermine ICAC from the right. You note that they don't say anything when Eddie Obeid goes down or when any Labor member goes down. Uh, it's only when it's one of their side. Now, the correct thing for Scott Morrison to have said, of course, would have been nothing. If he must comment on it, the correct thing would have been to say, well, we don't know what the findings of ICAC are yet. We will wait and we will accept the umpire's decision as is just and right. Of course, it's not within his nature to do that. We've discussed this before. He must win at everything. It's the mark of a small, unimaginative mind. Politically, this is playing out very, very poorly. As far as the electorate is concerned, a federal ICAC, to the standard of the New South Wales ICAC, that seems to be a non-negotiable item. Surveys over the past few years, they've shown that between 80 and 85% of the electorate do want to have a federal ICAC, and that includes 88% of coalition supporters and 70% of all numbers they want it to be as tough and as diligent as the New South Wales ICAC. So the natural conclusion that we can see is that Morrison wants a watered-down federal ICAC, or none at all, that seems to be his preference, because he doesn't want them to be able to do anything. He knows that many coalition MPs would be the first ones to appear at a federal ICAC if it was set up according to the New South Wales version, and that would include Angus Taylor, Barnaby Joyce, Michael Sukar, Kevin Andrews, Bridget McKenzie, Christian Porter, Peter Dutton, Stuart Robert, George Christensen, Gladys Liu, Scott Morrison himself. I'm not sure if I've missed out anyone there, but all of these would be spending time fronting up a federal ICAC if it was set up according to the New South Wales standard. And that's a lot of coalition MPs. And this is the real reason behind Morrison stonewalling on a federal ICAC. It would be like Turkey's voting for Christmas, and he's just not going to allow that to happen, and, and you know, especially if Christmas is coming up pretty soon. We probably should add that all of these people may be innocent and may face an inquiry and, and get off, but we can certainly say that there's enough to suggest or to warrant an investigation into their acts and behaviours. It is quite clear it's a government that doesn't like accountability. It's a government that doesn't like transparency. Whether it's honest or not is a slightly different issue, but honest people tend to not mind accountability and transparency. Dishonest people tend to not like it. And they're not very smart at their dishonesty. Uh, all these secret things have come out. I can't see a federal ICAC being set up by the Morrison government unless they're forced into it like the Turnbull government was forced into same-sex marriage and they watered it down and they tried to change it and then they were comprehensively beaten anyway, which is probably what's going to happen even with a watered-down ICAC. They'll get caught. All of this also points to laziness within this government as well. So if Scott Morrison really did want to introduce a federal ICAC, even his watered-down version, he would have done it a long, long time ago. He initially made the promise in December 2018 and 
As a comparison, you mentioned Nick Reiner before. He was the Liberal Party Premier of New South Wales. He promised to create a New South Wales ICAC when he was elected in March 1988. And this is going back a long, long time ago. And within 12 months, the organisation was up and running with Ian Temby commencing as the first commissioner in March 1989. So these structures do not take forever to set up. And maybe two years would be needed if it's a national body, but definitely three years should be more than enough time. And and instead of trying to deliver a federal ICAC, Morrison has made the push for the religious discrimination bill. And that was also promised three years ago. And he also pushed through the voter ID legislation. Now, both of these bills are solutions looking for problems. Nobody really cares or wants these bills. And if the government was so concerned about these issues, well, you don't introduce them at the last minute. You get it done and dusted and put in place. But maybe that was never the real reason. The religious discrimination bill, it's like so many issues for the coalition, is littered with hyperbole and rhetoric. They're claiming that schools of faith should be able to employ people of their own faith, which they can already do anyway. And in the debate about the religious discrimination bill, Scott Morrison did say that we are what we believe. And in the context of the accusations of lying and misleading Parliament, it probably wasn't the best choice of words. But people in Australia are free to believe in whichever religion they wish to. And that's the case now, and it's always been the case. And Morrison, true to form, he's been totally misrepresenting Australian history. He mentioned that settlers first came to Australia to escape religious persecution. So I think he got his countries mixed up there. But Morrison's now got this pastiche of all these different versions of Australian history, all of which are totally incorrect. He said that Australia never had slavery. Yes, it did. He also said that James Cook circumnavigated Australia. Well, no, he never did that. And now he's saying that the first settlers were escaping religious persecution. And I'm just thinking, like, which part of the electorate is all of this stuff playing out to? I should be a little bit fair here and say that for the type of education Morrison would have received, the belief was is that Australia never had slavery and it was never an officially sanctioned thing in Australia. Britain had uh, abolished slavery in around 1800, but with the blackbirding that happened, with the treatment of Indigenous people, there was a, an officially unofficial approach to it, which he has no excuse for not knowing. I'm not trying to defend him here, but I am trying to demonstrate that he learned what history he knew at school, I think, and has never delved any deeper into it. Of course, it suits his narrative that slavery never happened because then you can claim that racism never happened. Now, I don't quite understand where he said that the first white settlers here were brought out here from religious persecution. That's utter nonsense. The first European settlers came out here because they were convicts, because they were guards of convicts, because they were administrators for the government who were running the guards who were the convicts. And there were a few free settlers who decided they wanted to try their luck in this new country of Australia. Religion didn't really enter into it. And in fact, you don't get religious persecution in Australia till a bit later when you have the anti-Catholic, anti-Protestant thing. And I'll be fair there, both sides had their organisations to protect each other. And both sides took over parts of industries to sandbag themselves against each other. And it was Robert Menzies, really, 
who removes it as an issue when he starts funding Catholic schools and uh, courts the the DLP. So religious persecution in Australia is a nothing if you're a Christian. If you're Muslim, it's different. But I note that the law doesn't seem to be pointed towards Muslim schools or Islamic organizations. It seems to be pointed towards Christian organizations. And it seems to be telling these organizations it's okay not to hire gay people because you don't like gay people. And this process ties in with the way that this government operates. If if you've got a government without any great agenda, if you address an issue that you've identified as a divisive issue that you can continue to use against your opponents, well, creating legislation and resolving that issue means that you can't use that again and you have to find something else to score political points against your opponent. And that's why I suggest that they probably never had any intention of creating legislation to resolve this religious discrimination issue because once they resolve it that means that that's gone as a political issue and it does mean that every election time they can reach out to faith-based communities to remind them that yes this is a liberal party that will look after your interests and and those communities will probably never look back and ask, well, wait a minute, didn't you promise that three years ago? They've probably forgotten all about it. And it means that the coalition can bring it up as a divisive issue at the next election and then the next election after that and after that and the cycle continues. So it's in the interest of the Liberal Party to never, ever resolve this religious discrimination issue that they created in the first place because it means that they can just keep using this as an issue to extend the ongoing cultural wars. Yeah, exactly. And I should also add the other religion that might argue discrimination is Judaism. When we see the anti-Semitic dog whistles in the protests, that's another case. Actually, I suppose any non-Christian religion, a lot of the government's rhetoric is having Christian and the other, which is, of course, a very simplistic and simple view that is in no way accurate. The legislation appeals to a certain type of right-wing voter who believes that society is under threat. They may not have any faith. They may not be Christians of any kind, but can see that these particular institutions are at risk. Of course, they're not at risk. If the Christian church was to be destroyed, it would have been destroyed well before the uh, the 19th century. It's entrenched. It is, in its various forms, a force for good. It is, in its various forms, a force for terrible evil. But it's not going anywhere in the next little while and really doesn't need the legislative protection that they want to give it. And I think they know that too, which is why they won't push it through. Well, it also seems like there's so much of the government's legislative agenda that it's just not going to get through. So... There's issues with the religious discrimination bill. There's issues with their version of the federal ICAC bill as well. The voter ID bill that they were trying to rush through Parliament, that's actually been defeated. There was also a Senate inquiry into the ABC that they wanted to implement as well. That's been cancelled as well by the Senate. So... To me, it just seems like there's a lot of things that the government wants to do. They want to implement so many horrible things, but they just can't get their act together. (laughs) It's a rabble led by further rabble. One of the things that they used to laugh at about Julia Gillard was that she'd set the record, I think, for most legislation set. And they, you know, they'd say, oh, we're being over-controlled, too much law. What she was doing, of course, was setting a national agenda. After the Howard government, it wasn't hard to beat. John Howard didn't pass as much legislation as perhaps he might have. Gough Whitlam was very effective, but it was a reforming 
government. Labor tends to pass more legislation, not because they want to control everything, but because they tend to be reforming governments. Most reforms need legislation to back them up, otherwise they just don't go anywhere. This government only wants to reform the tax system, and that's about it. Making it easier for wealthy people to get wealthier, and making it harder for poor people to break out of poverty. And that's their sole interest in governing Australia, apart from carving it up for themselves and their donors. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, the political debate goes to a disturbing new level. How did we get into this hole, and how do we get out of it? There have been some disturbing developments from certain members of parliament during this week, and the latest issue is coming from the Liberal National Party member for Dawson, George Christensen, who likens state governments around Australia to the regimes of Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot and Mao, and especially the Victoria government, and has encouraged civil disobedience against vaccine mandates. George Christensen is retiring from politics at the next election. He currently holds his seat by a margin of 15%. And you would think that there wouldn't be much for Scott Morrison to lose by condemning Christensen, condemning his actions and calling him out for his outrageous statements. There is the Godwin's principle that suggests that discussions on the internet always end up with comparisons with Adolf Hitler and Nazis. But to bring up these historical figures completely out of context is an insult to the people who have suffered under these respective regimes from both the left and the right side of politics. And and it's a weak argument that will be used by the misinformed to promote their radical agendas against state governments. We might be entering some dark terrain if we've got a federal politician from a mainstream political party who is virtually calling for sedition and a prime minister who tries to ignore the issues and indirectly encourage them. Christensen is, of course, one of the less effective members of parliament. He's very big on talking big and not very good at following through with it. He's threatened across the floor so many times that if he did, there would be a trench in Parliament House. He very rarely does. I really think he's better out of politics. Christensen appeals to a particular part of the electorate who thinks that the vaccine is a conspiracy to inject stuff into us that's not a vaccine, who thinks that any Labor government must be bad and any non-Labor government that's on the right might be good. Christensen is probably part of that movement that's saying all federal politicians are corrupt and we need further right-wing ones to fix this because it's only those strong right-wing politicians. The word not used is fascist, but that's what they mean, who can fix this stuff. 
It's hard to find any achievement he's done even in the seat of Dawson. He holds Dawson by a very safe margin, 15%. So it's clear he's not stepping down because he's at risk of losing his seat. We could speculate as to the reason why Christensen's standing down, and I'm not sure if he has given an official reason. He might just be tired of the whole thing. There are rumours floating around that it's to do with other things. That, as there are only rumours, I'm not going to broadcast them. Many of you may have heard them anyway. So Scott Morrison could treat him. So if he crosses the floor, it doesn't matter anyway. You could just hold the legislation back that he's going to cross the floor on till the next parliament. It's really bizarre and really strange, and it is trying to court a part of it, the Australian political spectrum that isn't very big, that isn't that influential outside its own circle, and that holds Scott Morrison in contempt anyway and probably won't get him any votes. It seems to me that the act of a, a desperate man clinging on to whatever he can to stay afloat. Politically, this is all very dangerous territory. The calls for uprising, they're usually the domain of left-wing and right-wing extremists or within unsophisticated political systems that usually resort to violence to sort out their political differences. But an MP in a supposedly sophisticated Western democracy, I, you know, I really don't think so. But using Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot and Mao... It's never really a good way to support your argument or to actually encourage violence. That's not a good idea. But I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed that he didn't have room for Idi Amin, Ceausescu, Mobutu or Mussolini. But maybe he's saving those dictators for his next speech. But we would expect members of parliament to be the ones that are trying to downplay violence in the community, not trying to encourage them. And that term civil disobedience is frequently used by pacifists and it's the Gandhian model of peaceful resistance. But coming from the right, it's always associated with violence. And it also comes at a difficult time in Melbourne where there are those people who are a part of the Bunnings Karen set and they're as mad as cut snakes. And I'm sorry to say that, but that's actually the case. All they need to hear from a federal MP are a few choice words and they'll spring into action. And when political leaders and MPs speak, they do speak with an authority that not many other people in the community do have. And it's like lighting up a fuse. And there are consequences from the words of George Christensen, and not very many of them are good. And we also have to put his comments into context. What would we say if we had a police leader or an army leader calling for civil disobedience and sedition? There would be an absolute outrage about this. So why should there be a different rule for a politician such as George Christensen? He's a guy who is very quick to talk tough under parliamentary privilege and is very quick to send out letters threatening defamation to things he doesn't like. Free speech comes with responsibilities. It also comes with consequence. And some of the consequence of free speech is that people will disagree with you and people might find things about you that you don't want found. But that's the, the nature of it. These people don't understand that. It'd be interesting to see who they put in, in his place, whether they put in a more mature and uh, considered candidate or whether they keep going down the makes a national splash through outrageous statements candidate. It'll, it'll be interesting to see. So Scott Morrison was asked what his perceptions of George Christensen's arguments are or the comments that George Christensen was making are, and 
in Parliament, he tried to... He didn't directly defend George Christensen, but he didn't actually mention his name at all. But he, Scott Morrison also brought up S Sally McManus, the head of the ACTU, to try and win his argument and defend George Christensen. He also referred to the 1996 riots at Parliament House by unionists, even though none of these actions or statements were supported by the Labor Party. So if you've got Hitler in your corner and if you're using events from over 25 years ago to support your arguments, you probably haven't got much of a leg to stand on. But the flavour of debate and the protests of the streets in Melbourne, all of which are being fuelled by right-wing extremists and right-wing members of parliament and mainstream media, it's got a similar tone to the debates and discussions that occurred in the lead up to the Capitol Hill insurrection earlier this year in the United States. And it does really have the potential to be mm. quite disastrous. And this is all coming at a time when we should be looking to our political leaders to protect the community and not encourage this form of violence. And again, I've said it before, these movements are really puppets for the American fascist movement to give the American fascist movement credibility in America that these free thinkers, these f rebels are just following the playbook of someone else, which will give very little gain to them, a bit of gain to those that they're following. And when they stop being useful, they'll be dumped. It's that simple. So there are two weeks in total to end this parliamentary year. We've already had the first week and we've got another one to go. But last week was absolutely bizarre. So we had Barnaby Joyce in Parliament drunk again in Parliament question time. And I've heard reports again that you could smell the alcohol coming from Barnaby Joyce. Morrison just doesn't seem to care about anything except for point scoring against the Labor Party and telling outrageous lies. So it just seemed to be a very chaotic and disruptive week for Parliament. As I mentioned, there's another week to go before the end of the year. There was a new speaker. We had coalition senators crossing the floor. Voter ID was blocked. Now, there could be even more fireworks in this final week of Parliament, and it's quite a bad way to end the year for the government. If they have another week like this week, it's just going to be an absolute disaster. It just seems like the anarchist society has taken over Parliament. All of this is not going to end well at all. It certainly looks like the Liberal Party may be starting to fracture for a whole range of reasons, ineffective leadership certainly being one of them a philosophy that stretches its members too far from one extreme to the other extreme, and I'm using extremes fairly in a relative manner here. I think state-based rivalries are coming out a bit, and ego is part of the play too. A lot of the leadership is probably just waiting for the Christmas break where things can slow down and hopefully a reset can be had, and they can come back in February a bit more united and a bit more focused on the, the task of winning an election that has to be called in the first few weeks of the sitting season. But David, you and I have talked about the, the rabble of the Liberal Party and the National Party over the past five years, ever since we set up this podcast. And we are people that look closely at politics and we believe that the coalition has been a rabble. It's been disorganised since 2013, pretty much since the day that they got back into office. It's been a disorganised rabble but yet they won the 2016 election when they were all falling apart and they were a rabble at that time 
they won the 2019 election. And that was even worse in the lead up to that election. They were falling apart. There were cracks within the coalition. So it seems like what the Liberal and National Party coalition does, it falls apart during most of Parliament, but it just seems to get its act together in the final three months of that parliamentary session. And then it manages to win the next election. Are we likely to see a repeat of that circumstance? It's very possible. And of course, Samuel Johnson on the the condemned man in the death cell, execution focuses the mind. Electoral loss focuses the mind. For those Liberal members who were good local members, they're doing a job that they presumably like a great deal or even love. They don't want to lose it. Of course they don't. There are those, of course, who need the money because they don't know how to survive in a normal job. Parliament gives them not only a very good wage, but travel allowances and other rorts and benefits that maybe they should be entitled to, maybe not. They don't want to lose the job. And of course, there's that small group, which isn't that small, but while they're in government, there's less likelihood that they'll be investigated and possibly charged with some of the malpractice that may be happening that we seem to know about. But yeah, I won't mention names there, of course, but while you're in government, it's a little easier to avoid investigation. So there's that as well. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.